How many of you really, really, really have a desire to please God? I mean, that is your desire. All right, now I'm going to ask you another question. I want you to think about this. How many of you really, really please God? One hand. And that's a little, uh, a little girl back there. And here's a little boy back here. And this is an amazing fact. All of us have a desire to really please God, but there's not very many people that believe that we really please God. That's something. You know, pleasing God is something that is a prerequisite to having a healthy relationship. If you compare relationships, you know, our relationships with each other should actually be uh, a small indication of a relationship with God. Sad to say it's not most of the time, but there are a lot of parallels. And if you had a relationship with somebody and if you didn't really believe that that person was pleased with you, then you wouldn't have boldness to go and impose on that person, to ask them for something, to petition them. We've been teaching on prayer the last two nights. You wouldn't have a boldness to go and ask that person for something and really expect to receive it if you didn't believe that that person was pleased with you. A person that is not pleased with you, you don't have a great bit of confidence in that person. You don't have a lot of confidence that that person is going to grant you the petitions that you desire. And see, if you don't believe that God is pleased with you, if you don't perceive that you're pleasing to God, then there is not going to be this boldness and confidence in relationship with God, specifically in believing and receiving from God. And yet, see, out of all of these people right here, I asked you how many desired to please God. Everybody desires to please God, but there's very few people that really believe that they please God. And what I want to share with you this morning... It's something that will rattle a few of you. It may shake your cage. Amen. But praise God, we need to be shaken a little bit. And that is that did you know God is pleased with you more so than what you believe? And it's the fact that we don't perceive that God's pleased with us that's the problem, not the fact that God isn't pleased. Most of us use the wrong thing as a barometer of whether God's pleased with us or not. Before I get into this, I want to be able to catch you on another one of these questions, all right, before I give too much explanation. What is it that actually makes you pleasing to God? What is it that God looks at and judges whether or not He's pleased with you? I see some of you are catching on. (laughs) Faith is the thing that pleases God, but did you know that I've kind of prepped you for this this morning? But if I was to ask you out on the street, do you please God? And if so, what is it that makes you please God? I asked a person this just last week. And they said, well, I seek God. I'm praying. I'm studying the Word. I go to church. And they start listing things that they do as this is what pleases God in my life. Did you know the things you do are not what pleases God? And yet most of us think that it's what we do that God is pleased with us or displeased with us over. And see, if you have that as your standard, if that's what you uh, mentally pull inventory on when somebody says, do you please God, well, then I guarantee you Satan is going to be able to destroy you because I guarantee you that none of our actions please God totally. Nobody can in your actions with your performance please God totally. And Satan is going to prey on that, bring up the mistakes, the failures to you. And if you think that God is loving you based on your performance, then you are going to be in a constant state of feeling that you don't please God, that God's not pleased with you, God won't answer your prayers, and Satan will destroy you in that respect. Let's look over in Hebrews chapter 11 and some scriptures, and I want to talk this morning about what it takes to please God. 
In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which, were, which are seen were not made of things which do appear. For those of you that have been here the last two nights, this is basically along the same lines of what we've been talking about. We've been talking about that there's a spiritual world and a physical world, and there are things that exist in the spiritual world first before they become physically manifest. And that's what this is saying. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. It didn't say that things that are seen, physical things, were made out of nothing they weren't made out of nothing. They were made out of something, but it was spiritual substance instead of physical substance. Spiritual substance produced all physical substance. And he goes on to say in verse 4, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now, talking about Enoch being translated, this is the seventh person from Adam. He's listed in Genesis chapter 5. He lived 365 years, and he begat Methuselah, who lived to be 969 years old. But Enoch, at 365 years, the Bible says that he was not because God took him. And so this scripture in, expands on it and says that he was translated. He was just literally caught up into heaven. Now, this is a pretty powerful miracle. There's only two people in the Word of God who were translated that they shouldn't see death. One was Enoch, and the other one was who? Elijah. So there's only two men in all of the Bible who were translated that they shouldn't see death. I mean, this man, there was something powerful going on in his life. You know, when you see great miracles operate through a person or in that person's life, what is one of the first things that you think of? You start thinking about what has that person done to deserve those kind of miracles? What is it that that person's doing that God is moving through them in this way? You know, I used to go usher in Catherine Kuhlman's meetings all of the time, and uh I had some people that I knew, and so I'd go and be an usher in these meetings. And I'd literally take people in on stretchers, and, and we had to clear the aisles. There were so many people in there and fire regulations. And I remember this one woman that she was so frail that for years she had been on just a spoonful of liquids is all she could eat at a time, and she was dying. She was nearly dead. And you could put your hand around the thigh of her leg like that. I mean, she was bone, skin and bone. Had to lift her up out of that stretcher and put her in a chair and hold her up because we had to move the stretcher and stuff out of the way. And I remember during that meeting watching all of these miracles taking place, people coming out of wheelchairs, blind eyes opening, deaf ears opening, and I looked around and this woman who I was holding up in this chair was doing push-ups on the floor and running up and down the aisle and getting her stretcher and pushing it down the deal and put it up on the stage. And I mean, God supernaturally healed her. And I was back in a Baptist church during this time. And I mean, boy, it was just no small miracle. And I was seeing all of these miracles. And boy, as Catherine Kuhlman was the most repulsive person in the natural, I think, that I've ever been around. She was weird, 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 spooky. And uh, she'd come flitting out on the stage in these long flowing garbs. And I mean, do weird stuff. 
This lady in the natural just turned me off to the max. But, boy, I couldn't deny these miracles. And so I'd get right up there on the stage. Boy, I'd be just a few feet from her looking at this lady and I was analyzing her. Boy, with everything I had, I was checking her out. And through my mind, I was thinking, God, what is it that she does that causes you to give her this power? What is it that makes her have this power? If you'd have been there, did you know a lot of you would have been thinking the exact same thing? When you hear about somebody who's a miracle worker and does these miracles, and say somebody with a lot of notoriety and all of these great miracles take place and then something comes out that they've got a sin in their life, that they failed, that they've done this, you know what most people think immediately? Well, that couldn't have been of God. It wasn't God really using them. God's not going to use a dirty vessel. We think in our minds that God is going to use somebody who's holy enough for God to use. And that holiness, man, according to your holiness, God's more pleased with you. God will give you extra power, extra anointing, extra things happen. And we get that mentality grained into us that God loves us and uses us based on performance. We get this mentality in us, and sad to say, it's come over into the Christian realm, into the Christian church, and many of you are studying the Word, praying, going to church, paying your tithes, doing all of these things, trying to be good enough, trying to perform enough that God will be pleased enough with you and give you the power, give you the anointing, answer your prayers, move in your life, set you free, do all of these things that you need done. And many people, that's the purpose of you being here this morning, is to be pleasing to God. You're here to try and please God by your actions, by doing something, by being holy. Brothers and sisters, that won't do it. Your actions will never be good enough. Catherine Kuhlman, a biography came out about her, and that woman was carnal in a lot of ways, had problems with her staff. She was short-tempered, irritable, all kinds of things, and yet God used her. Somebody says, how could God use a dirty vessel? Well, God hadn't got any other kind of vessels to use. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Oh, well, brother, I'm not perfect, but at least I don't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do, praise God. At least I'm better than this old publican over here. I fast twice in the week. I pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin and all that I possess. See, that's that old Pharisee syndrome, comparing yourself among yourselves. The truth is God's never had anybody qualified working for him yet. God never will have anybody qualified working for him. God doesn't use us based on performance. Somebody says, well, you may not be perfect, but at least you've got to hit a certain measure. Well, see what that is. That's this mentality that God grades on a curve. (laughs) You know, nobody's going to make a hundred. Nobody's going to be perfect, but God's got a quota. He's got to accept somebody. So if you only make 30 on your test, but if you make, you know, percentage-wise, if you're in the top 20%, you can get your prayers answered. That's not the way it works. You've either got to be perfect in your performance or you've got to have faith in a Savior, and it's your faith in a Savior that grants you acceptance and the move of God in your life. It's your faith that God's pleased with. Right here, Enoch, this man who was translated, it says before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now, the word testimony means that not only was God pleased with Enoch, but Enoch perceived that God was pleased with him, and Enoch went around telling people that I please God. It's not enough just for God to be pleased with you, 
But you've got to perceive that God is pleased with you and by faith perceive that and walk in it and have that as a testimony before it's going to produce results in your life. In Enoch's case, it was being translated. In your case, it may be being healed, delivered, prospered, uh, the blessing to other people, boldness, all of these other things. But before you're going to see God's being pleased with you, His attitude towards you prosper you and actually produce anything in your life, you've got to perceive that you please God and have that as a testimony to the place you can go around and tell other people. Did you know if most of you, if somebody was to come up and say, do you please God? Or if they were to say, how are you? And if you said, I please God, man, a bunch of you, you would feel like that was blasphemy. A lot of you would feel like, man, lightning's going to strike if I say this because it's so ingrained in your mind that it's my performance that pleases God. And you know in your own mind that your performance isn't what it's supposed to be. You know, I've shared during this seminar a few examples of some of the miracles that we've seen. We've seen a lot of people raised from the dead. I've seen, you know, this Lafon. I can't remember her last name, but she's been here the last two nights. I don't think she hears, she's here this morning. But her father, I'll be going over there and spending the night with them tonight. He, he was raised from the dead during one of our meetings in Kansas City. The guy was dead for 45 minutes, and he's now 70 years old, working 15, 12, 15 hours a day. The guy's just a blessing. Amen. And she's been here the last two nights. The guy died while I was preaching. It was the rudest thing anybody ever did in one of my meetings. We've seen him raised from the dead. We saw a man raised from the dead in Pritchett, Colorado. Did you know that I've got a lot? Matter of fact, just about two months ago, I was in Corpus Christi, Texas, and we were preaching on John 14, 12 about the works that Jesus did and shall we do also in greater works than these. And we saw some miracles happen, some good things happen. But the Sunday after I left, the pastor was up preaching, and he was preaching on that, John 14, 12, that, praise God, we're going to see the works that Jesus did happen in this church. And while he was preaching, a guy on the front row stood up and fell over dead, amen, <laughs> right in front of the whole service. And they had a lady come up who was a, well, this is Philip's brother-in-law, the, the guy who's the pastor there, Philip, who's with me. And... Uh, he stood up, and there was a lady that came down front, and she was a nurse, and she tried all of the vital signs. There weren't any. She tried CPR. Nothing worked, and so she said, he's dead, and they'd called an ambulance, and, and before the ambulance got there, Fred just walked down and prayed over him, and the guy stood up and walked out with the paramedics. He had had heart pressure. He had had high blood pressure, heart problems, all these things, and the guy was healed. Anyway, if I tell you about all of those miracles, now we've seen great miracles happen, and then, see, now this is a full gospel church, right? We don't believe in the empty gospel. We believe in the full gospel. If I was to say, how many of you believe in these miracles? How many of you believe in healing? Boy, all of you. Amen, brother. We believe in the full gospel. We believe in that. You'll get excited. Somebody testifying about that. If somebody came forward today and they fell over dead. And if I said, how many of you believe that God can raise this person from the dead? Most of you would stand right in there toe-to-toe with me. Amen, brother. We believe in that. Praise God. See, you don't doubt that God can do miracles. If you did, you'd be at the first church of the Frigidaire this morning instead of out here. Amen. You wouldn't have taken the flack of leaving your denomination and being associated with this. You know, some of you may not know it, but you're guilty by association. Amen. You might as well quit worrying about what somebody thinks about you. They know where you go to church. You're guilty anyway, amen. They consider you a fanatic, so you might as well live like one. So most of you, see, believe God can heal. But you know what Satan is making people doubt? He's not making you doubt that God can heal. You'll accept these testimonies. Yes, God does miracles. God heals. God does these things. You know where Satan is making people doubt? 
He's making you doubt that God's willing to heal for you because you don't really please God. You don't have the assurance that you please God and that God is willing to use that power. See, if somebody died and if I said, all right, we're going to pray for him, how many of you believe God will raise him from the dead? Boy, there's a bunch of you. Amen, brother, pray for him. I want to see this. I want to be here when somebody's raised from the dead. You'd be right in there praising God. And I said, all right, if you believe for it, you come down and pray for him. Now, see, that's where most people admit it. You believe God can heal. You believe God will heal when I pray. You believe it will work for somebody else. But when I say, all right, if you believe it, you come pray for him. That's where this doubt would immediately rise up. Y'all following what I'm saying? You know why you believe my prayers will work better than your prayers? It's because you know you better than you know me. <laughs> if you knew me as much as you knew you, you wouldn't have any more faith in my prayers than you have in your prayers. If you knew all of my problems and all of my mistakes and all of the things that are wrong with me, you'd feel just as bad about my prayers as you feel about your prayers. But the reason that we lose confidence is because we know us, we know our failures, and we know that God couldn't be pleased with us. We doubt His willingness to use His ability. We don't really doubt God's ability. There's very few of you in here that are probably struggling with the thing, does God have power to... To change your situation. That's not the problem. You doubt God's willingness to do it because you know you and you think God deals with you and loves you and is pleased with you based on your performance. And that's the faith killer. You've got to understand that God is not pleased with you based on your performance. Your performance is not what God is beholding. The next verse right here, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, but without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. It lists two aspects of faith here. There's two sides. It's like a coin. There's two sides to faith. Faith is not only believing that God is... That means that God is able, present tense, not that God was. God's not the great I was, and He's not the great I'm going to be. God's the great I am. It's got to be present tense. You've got to believe that God is able, present tense, that He has the power and the ability. But then the flip side of the coin is that you've got to believe that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. In other words, you've not only got to believe God's power, but you've got to believe God's willingness to use the power that if you'll just seek Him, and it's understood, implied by the context in faith, that if you're seeking Him in faith, that He'll reward you, that God will bless you. You've got to believe God's willingness to release that power in your behalf. And that's where most of us are falling down. It's just like Peter walking on the water, 14th chapter of the book of Matthew. He walked on the water and he did fine as long as he was looking at Jesus. But when he got close, and you know how I know that it was that he got close? Because the scripture says that he cried out to Jesus. If he would have been closer to the boat than to Jesus, he'd have cried out to those guys in the boat for help instead of to Jesus. Also, the scripture doesn't say that Jesus went running to him and lifted him up. It just says that he reached out his hand. I believe that Peter got close enough to Jesus that he was within one arm's reach. And there's a lot of parallels to this. Because did you know that when you're in a crisis situation, when your back's against the wall, did you know that, man, you have no confidence in yourself? You know that if God doesn't do a miracle, you're going to drown, you're going to sink, and boy, you'll get serious, you'll seek God. But it's when you get to a place to where you can make it. I mean, you can nearly fall that far now. You're just, you know, that's when people let up. I believe that Peter, boy, when he was out there, I mean, in the miracle territory where he had to have a miracle to survive, Peter kept his eyes fashioned on Jesus. Nothing moved him to the right or to the left. But when he got close, 
Close enough that he thought he had just about made it, he began to start looking around and really seeing what was going on. And he took his eyes off of Jesus. He was afraid and began to seek. And Jesus lifted him up and he said, Peter, why did you doubt? Also, another question that's important to ask is what did he doubt? What did Peter doubt? Peter didn't doubt that Jesus could walk on the water. If he had, he wouldn't have called out to Jesus for help. He would have called back to those guys in the boat for help. He believed Jesus could walk on the water, but he doubted his ability to walk on the water because he started relating back to the natural. This is where Satan is making us doubt. You don't really have problems with God having ability. You have problems with God willing to use that ability in your behalf. And it all boils down to this thing. You don't have confidence that you please God. Enoch pleased God. And it wasn't because of his holiness. Now, I do believe that Enoch had holiness. And I do believe that Enoch was holiness. But it wasn't a confidence in what he had done. If Enoch would have been confident in what he had done, I guarantee you Satan could have destroyed him. Anybody who puts confidence in your own actions is never going to have a real boldness towards God because regardless of how good your actions are, they'll never be perfect. And Satan is the accuser of the brethren, is what it says in Revelation chapter 12. And Satan is a master at coming and showing you your faults and failures and condemning you and taking away your confidence. The reason most people don't have confidence towards God is because they think that it's their actions that are going to earn them pleasing God. And so we're trying to put faith in the wrong thing. We're putting faith in our actions instead of faith in the mercy and the goodness of God. It's faith in God that's going to give you boldness towards God. I have boldness towards the Lord because I learn that when the devil begins to start condemning me and saying, you sorry thing, what makes you think God's going to use you? I used to get in there and begin to start arguing with him and saying, well, I'm not everything, but bless God, I'm better than I was. And I've been fasting more. I've prayed more. I've studied more. The moment you start doing that, you've lost. Because you're going to eventually run out of your own goodness and you're going to have to face the fact that, hey, you've failed. None of you are perfect. None of you are good enough to deserve any of the blessings of God. And Satan will just keep after you and finally he'll show you your failures and your faith will fail because it's in you instead of in a Savior. I've learned, the Bible says, to agree with the adversary quickly while you're in the way. Amen. That's what Jesus said to do. So when the devil starts condemning me and saying, you jerk, what makes you think God will use you? I say, guilty. You're right. (laughs) Well, I haven't got a prayer. I guess I'll just pray in the name of Jesus then. Amen. I'll get it through who Jesus is. I'll just put my faith in Jesus. And I quit trying to justify Andrew and I start just glorifying Jesus. And now the devil can't condemn me. He can show me how sorry I am. And, it, you know, I'm not saved because I was worth being saved. I saved because I had a Savior and He offered things to me freely by faith. And I put faith in Him and I got saved because of what Jesus did, not because of what I've done. The reason I get used and the reason God blesses me is because I'm getting to be strong in the grace that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm getting to where I can put more faith in God than I've gotten myself. And, boy, it's a strong position. Brothers and sisters, most of us haven't mentally made this adjustment. Most of us are still thinking, do I please God yet? Are my actions pleasing to God? I can tell you the answer, no. (laughs) Some of them may be pleasing to God, but if you want to sum yourself up as a whole, I guarantee you every last one of you are falling short of the measure that God wants you to, and God doesn't grade on a curve. It's not the best you can do, and then let Jesus make up the difference. You're either going to get it through faith in a Savior, or you're going to get it through your own actions, but not any combination of the two. Amen or oh me. That's good news. But did you know most people, that's hard to accept. We are so, it is so ground into us 
that it's our performance that pleases God. And if you don't live holy, God won't use you. Holiness is important. Holy men, if you don't do this and this and this, God won't bless you. I've got 45 tapes, 45 90-minute teaching tapes that explain this whole point that I'm making. So I'm not going to be able to answer all those questions this morning. But brothers and sisters, the key to the Christian life is to recognize that it is not your goodness that God is looking at or is pleased with. It's only Jesus. And if you put faith in Jesus, that's what makes you acceptable to God. God's pleased with some of you today whose your life is a wreck. But if you've made Jesus your Lord and if you're walking in faith and using faith as the rate of exchange between you and God, God can be pleased with you even though your actions don't measure up. Boy, that just rubs our religion the wrong way. Our religion says that's hypocrisy. It's actually hypocrisy. It's the height of deception to think that you can be pleasing to God through your own performance. The worst sin of all is a sin of self-righteousness. Thinking, God, you owe it to me. God, I know you're going to use me today because I've fasted and I've prayed and bless God, I've done these things. That's the worst sin of all, is the sin that you don't need Jesus. You can get it because you're good enough. And brothers and sisters, there's a lot of people in religion today who have developed that mentality. It's easy to understand why, because see, there's no no role model for grace and mercy. I mean, your employer doesn't hire you by grace. He doesn't say, regardless whether you come to work, put in a honest day's wage, regardless whether you do anything, regardless of what you do, I want you to know you got a guaranteed job, pay raises, inflation, everything. You're taking care of retirement. Everything's done. It's not based on your performance. Your employer hires you by performance. People's relationships are based on performance. Parent and child is usually performance. Husband and wife is usually performance. They aren't supposed to be, but they usually are. Every role model that we have is all performance, but when it comes to God, I want you to know that your performance can never earn you zip with God. Zero. Zilch. Your performance might be better than mine, but who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? Amen. Man, if you've sinned, come short of the glory of God, you need a Savior. And if you've got a Savior, then it's your faith in the Savior that's going to grant you access to God, not your performance. And after you get born again, it doesn't change. Most people, when it comes to forgiveness of sins, will acknowledge this and say, yes, that's the way it is. I know I can't get saved based on what I've done. But after I get saved, God expects me to pray, study the Word, do these things. And if I don't do this, God won't bless me. That's not so. The Bible says in Colossians 2, 6, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. That means the same way you receive Jesus is the same way you continue to receive from Jesus. If we could go back to the simplicity of the gospel and just be as simple as when we got born again. We sang the song, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood is shed for me. We put our faith 100% in Jesus. And if somebody would have come forward for salvation, and if they came forward this morning and said, Would you please pray for me that I'll be born again? And if I had a word of knowledge and I said, You sorry thing. Boy, God shows me you're living in adultery. You're a murderer. You're a thief. You're all of these things. If I started pointing out their sins, if they heard the gospel correctly, that wouldn't make them disbelieve that God would save them because He's forgiven all of our sins. Instead, it would drive them even more to say, that's the reason I need Jesus to be my Lord. God, forgive me. And they'd put faith in Jesus and get born again in spite of who they are, not because of who they are. Now, that's salvation. But when it comes to healing, what if you came up here for healing and if I had a word of knowledge and says, you haven't had... A daily devotion for the last week. You had a fight with your wife on the way to church. 
There's a lot of people that would come from murder, from adultery, from thievery, from everything and put faith in a Savior and get born again and not let those things stop them from getting born again. But when it comes to getting healed, if you haven't read your Bible today, if you got mad on the way to church, it's going to keep you from being healed. Can you see that that's a double standard? Can you see that that's saying that you have to get something from God after you're born again differently than you got it before you're born again? That's wrong. That's incorrect. That's not the way it works. That's the reason that most of you got born again so easily is because your faith was in a Savior. And regardless of how much the devil threw up all his smut on you, it didn't stop you from believing because you were believing in a Savior. Your faith was in a Savior, not in yourself. But when it comes to healing, our faith is in ourself. Our faith is in what we've done. And Satan comes up and says, you aren't worthy. You don't please God. Sure, God is, but he won't reward you because you don't please God. And most of us, because we think that God's going to deal with us based on our performance, we'll get into unbelief and disbelieve God's willingness to use his power because we don't feel that we please God. Well, I guarantee you, your actions didn't please God when you got born again. And yet you got born again because of faith in a Savior. Your actions may not please God today. But did you know you can receive deliverance, healing, prosperity, whatever you need from God in spite of who you are, not because of who you are? Is somebody saying that I'm advocating sin? Are you just saying, brother, that I don't need to go to church and I don't need to study the Word and I don't need to do anything because, man, it's just faith in God? Is that what you're saying? No, it's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that God doesn't look at your actions. Your actions are important to you and to the devil. Brian mentioned this series on hardness of the heart. It's a three-tape series, and I'd encourage you to get that. It is a perfect balance to what I'm saying today. My actions, my holiness are important because holiness changes me. And holiness changes Satan's inroad into my life, but holiness does not move God or change my position with God. It doesn't give me any more pull or leverage with God if I'm holy or less if I'm unholy. But unholiness will hurt me. It will harden my heart towards God. And even though God still loves me, I won't love God as much because I've been living in sin. I hadn't been meditating on the love of God. I hadn't been seeking God. And I'll get further and further and further away from God. Even though God still loves me, I won't love God. Even though God has faith towards me, I won't have faith towards God. Sin will hurt me. But it doesn't hurt God's attitude toward me. It'll hurt my perception. I will not have the boldness to believe that I'm pleasing to God when I'm out here just consciously going against God. That's not the way it works. Amen? It's very similar to like, uh, for instance, eating. You know, you have to eat to stay alive. But did you know eating is not life? Eating is something you have to do to live. But eating itself is not life. And if you miss one meal, are you going to die? Most of us could miss one meal and live a lot longer. <laughs> Amen. Missing one meal is not going to cause you to die. And if you didn't know that, if you thought, well, see, it is true that you've got to eat to live. It's an important part of life. But if you didn't understand things properly and you miss one meal and all of a sudden the devil comes to you and says, you missed a meal, you're going to die. And if you got into fear and paranoid, I'm going to die because I didn't eat. Did you know that you could actually die of a heart attack or something could happen and you could die? And I mean, it'd just be... That's foolishness to us. People think, well, I'm not going to die because I missed a meal. Well, did you know that if you just constantly live in sin, if you constantly do that and never feed yourself spiritually, but you're just living in sin, it will kill you. I am not saying that you can just ignore your actions. 
We do need to be seeking God. We do need to pray. We do need to read the Word. We do need to do these things. But I can tell you, brothers and sisters, that you are not going to do it perfectly. There's going to be some times you miss. And it is not going to mean that God is displeased with you any more than it means you're going to die if you miss one meal. You as a whole are still eating, even though you may miss a meal. You as a whole are still seeking God and pleasing God, even though we all constantly fail and blow it in certain areas. I've got to breathe to live. But did you know if I hiccup and miss a breath, I'm not going to fall over and say I'm going to die. I missed a breath. I'm going to die. I know that I can hold my breath for a while and I can still live. You cannot live holy for a while and still maintain faith. You can't do it very long, though. But when you do fail, instead of letting all this condemnation on you, you need to say that, look, I'm sorry I missed it here, but bless God, I'm not going to let that thing keep me from having, receiving the blessing of God. It's my faith that pleases God. You ask forgiveness, you get back on track, and you keep going, and you don't let everything go because you blew it. Look over in Luke chapter 22. I want to show you an example of somebody who had faith, and according to Hebrews chapter 11... The scripture we just read, faith is what pleases God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is pleasing to God. So if you've got faith, you're pleasing to God, even if you don't have actions that go along with it. Eventually, faith has to have actions. James chapter 2 says, faith without works is dead. You've got to have actions eventually, but that does not mean that every single time you're going to be perfect, and if you aren't perfect, then you don't have faith. No, you can have faith the same way as you can live and not breathe or eat for a little bit. And still be alive. Here in Luke chapter 22 is an example of Jesus the very last night before his crucifixion. And he was talking to Peter. And here's what he said in Luke chapter 22 verse 31. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now, all of us are familiar that Peter did blow it tremendously. Peter denied the Lord, and he didn't do it just once. He denied the Lord three times. And the third time, people said, Oh, you are one of those Galileans that followed Jesus, and your your speech is betraying you. And so to show them that he was not a follower of Jesus, he not only denied Jesus again, but he began to curse and blaspheme God to deny Jesus. I mean, this is a a sin of great magnitude. This isn't just a small mistake. Peter sinned big time. And yet Jesus prayed for him that his faith wouldn't fail. You know, most of us, the way that we judge things, and we judge it based totally on performance. We look at actions, and actions to us are the ultimate Did you know that actions are a reflection of what's on the inside, but it's not a perfect reflection? It's possible to have an action that is not really consistent with the way you are in your heart. Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. How many of you believe that every time Jesus ever prayed that he got his prayers answered? I believe Jesus' prayers were answered. And therefore, to have this prayer answered, Peter's faith didn't fail. But if most of us had looked at Peter, we'd have thought his faith failed. Peter's actions failed to be consistent with God. Peter failed. His actions failed, but his faith didn't fail. This is an example of somebody who had faith, and according to Hebrews chapter 11, was still pleasing to God because faith was there even though actions didn't line up with it. Now, if Peter would have not repented of his actions, and if he would have persisted denying the Lord over a long period of time, just like not breathing, you can go without a breath or two, but you hold your breath too long, you'll die. 
If you go without eating too long, you'll die. If Peter would have continued in this state, it would have killed him, spiritually, everything. But Peter failed the Lord three times in one night, big-time failure, sin against God, and yet his faith did not fail. I don't believe God was displeased with him. God was displeased with his actions, but God was still pleased with Peter because his faith didn't fail. And that man, his faith eventually had his actions catch up with his faith, and that man not only was restored to a place where he was, but he went on beyond it, became the pillar of the church, saw Dorcas raised from the dead in the Bible, and this man went on and just continued on with God. This is an example of somebody whose actions failed, and yet they pleased God because there was faith present. Boy, this is radical, isn't it? Most of us cannot have any boldness or confidence when we know that in our heart we've blown it because we say, how could God be pleased with me? God's pleased with you because of faith. Let me take one other example here, and I'm going to hurry through this, but Enoch is the guy we started talking about. There's only about four verses written about Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, but there's another guy who was translated named Elijah, and Elijah has many scriptures written about him. Let's turn over to 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah came on the scene in 1 Kings chapter 17. And the way that he appeared on the scene, he went to Ahab, who was an ungodly king, and told Ahab, he says, because of the sins of Israel, there is going to be a famine and a drought in the land all of these years, according to my word. And then he took off and hid himself. And he hid himself by this brook, and God fed him with uh, ravens, brought him food every morning and every night, and he stayed there for a while. And then finally God sent him to Zarephath, which was a Gentile city. And he went in to a widow who was fixing her last little bit of meal and oil, and she was going to make one cake so that her and her son could eat it and then die. And this prophet, this man of God, walked up and said, Give me something to eat. And she says, well, this is my last stuff. I'm going to fix this, and my son and I are going to eat it and die. And he says, you give me some first, and then go fix some for yourself. Boy, that's bold. You talk about Jim Baker, Jimmy Swaggart being a scandal. If something like that was to happen today, and somebody go up to a widow woman and say, you give me your last bit of food, and then go get something for yourself. Boy, I guarantee you we'd crucify somebody like that today. And it would be wrong if God didn't tell you to do it. But see, the results was that because that woman gave out of her need that God multiplied her meal and her oil. And for three and a half years, she fed herself, her son, and Elijah. And they never went hungry on that little bit of meal and oil that they had. It was a great miracle. And during this period of time, that boy did die during this three and a half year period of time. And Elijah went up and raised him from the dead in the 17th chapter of 1 Kings. And then he came back. And he told Ahab, he says, you bring all of the prophets, prophets of Baal up to the top of Mount Carmel. There were 450 of them. And he got up there and he told the people, he says, how long are you going to halt between two opinions? If God's God, serve him. And if Baal is God, serve him. And the people didn't answer him a word. And he says, we're going to have a contest. He made two altars. He says, we're going to put two sacrifices, one on each altar. And we're going to let the prophets of Baal go first. And nobody's going to put fire to the sacrifice. We're going to let God... The true God start the sacrifice, bring fire down from heaven. And the God who answers by fire, he's the real God. And all the people said, yay, that's good. Amen. That's, this would prove who is the true God. So the 450 prophets of Baal, they started from early in the morning until evening, trying to call fire down out of heaven and beseeching Baal. Finally, Elijah gets in there and begins to make fun of him. And he says, maybe he's asleep. 
Maybe you ought to yell a little louder so you could wake Baal up. Maybe he's on a journey and you got to wait for him to come back. And he began to start taunting them and they began to cut themselves and stuff till the blood gushed out and yet nothing happened. And then Elijah, he took uh, some people and dug a trench around his altar and it was in a drought, remember? He took four barrels of water and drenched that sacrifice with water until it ran down and filled up the trench. And then he did it three more times, 12 barrels of water in all that he filled up this trench with so that there was no possibility of spontaneous combustion. I mean, there was no way around this. This was God. And he said a little short prayer. God, do this so that these people will know that you are the true God and that I have spoken these things by your command. And boy, the fire from God fell out of heaven, burnt up the sacrifice, burnt the water, burnt the dirt, and burnt the rocks. Boy, an awesome fire. And the people fell down and said, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. And Elijah took 450 prophets down to the bottom of the hill and cut their heads off, killed 450 men who dared stand against God. That's Elijah. Amen. Strong man of God. That's all in the 17th, 18th chapter. In the 19th chapter... Jezebel, the queen, heard about what Elijah had done... And Jezebel sent a messenger and said, God, make my, make my life like one of those prophets that you killed if I don't kill you by this time tomorrow. In other words, she swore with an oath and says, God, you kill me if I don't kill Elijah by this time tomorrow. And Elijah, who had defied the king, who had defied the entire nation, defied 450 prophets of Baal, called fire down out of heaven. I mean, this guy was stronger than horseradish. This guy, when that woman came out against him, he tucked tail and ran. He got afraid and he ran. And in the 19th chapter, we find him sitting under a juniper tree, crying and belly aching and saying, Oh God, take away my life. I'm no better than any of my fathers. Did you know by him saying that, it shows us something. That he got to thinking he was better than his fathers. Or he wouldn't have said, God, now I'm no better than my father. You know what happened? I'm reading a little between the lines, but this is something I believe that is consistent. It's a temptation to all of us, and it happened to Elijah. Elijah started off in total humility, really seeking God, being God-dependent, trusting God totally. But when he saw so many great miracles, Elijah began to start thinking, man, God, look what God did through me. And the emphasis wasn't on look what God did through me, but it was look what God did through me. And he got into the flesh. It had to be that because, see, he stood against the king and the armies and all the prophets of Baal and defied them with total boldness. But then when the queen came against him, he tucked tail and ran like a total coward. Two opposite reactions. The difference had to be that one time he was standing in the strength of the Lord and trusting the Lord. The next time he was standing in himself. You know, this happened again with Jezebel's son, Ahaziah, in the second, second Kings chapter 1. And Ahaziah was going to kill him. And he sent a captain along with 50 men to take him. And they said, Oh, thou man of God, come down. And this is after Elijah learned his lesson. And he said, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down. Man, the fire of God fell out of heaven and consumed 51 men. So Ahaziah sent another captain out and 51 men came again. And they said, oh, thou man of God, the king has said, come down quickly. And he said, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down out of heaven and consume you and your 50. And the fire of God fell out of heaven and consumed them. 102 people destroyed like that. He could have done that with Jezebel and all of her host. 
See, he wasn't standing in the strength of the Lord. He got into the flesh because he was looking at what he had done. Anytime you're into performance, I don't care whether your performance is good or bad, you're in the flesh. Even if your performance is good, if you've been going to church and paying your tithes and praying all day and studying the Word, and if you get smug about what you've done, you're in the flesh. You are not in the Spirit. Your faith isn't in God. You're standing in the strength of the flesh. And your flesh may be stronger than my flesh, but your flesh is not as strong as the devil. And I guarantee you, you are going to tuck tail and run when the battle gets engaged. That's what happened. And he began to say, God, I'm no better than all of my fathers before me. He failed God big time. A coward ran from the queen. And you know what happened? The Lord spoke to him and he said, Elijah, what are you doing here? Well, that's a good question. What do we do in some of the messes we're in? How come you're depressed? Well, we usually have an answer. Well, God, it's that problem. It's this, it's this, it's that. You know, it's this Adam syndrome. Amen. Everybody's saying, it's this woman that you gave me. Notice, he passed the buck to Eve first, and then he said, it's this woman that you gave me. He tried to make God responsible for the whole thing. And we, everybody's always blaming everybody else. It's not me that missed it. It's this. It's my problem. God, anybody would be sick if cancer came against them. Cancer's no excuse for not being healed. Cancer's no harder to heal than a cold. The only thing to make cancer big is that you've made it big. Did you know they can do more to heal a cold than they can cancer? That's the truth. Cancer is 100% incurable. The only difference between a cold and cancer is that people don't have the same fear level associated with the cold that they do with cancer, but they're both incurable. All you can do is deal with the symptoms. We had a woman come to me one time. She was 20 years old, 21 years old, I think. She was a minister's wife. They were out traveling around. And anyway, they were believing God to have a child. She got pregnant. Word came back to church. Everybody was excited. And when she got back home, she went to the doctor and found out it wasn't pregnancy. It was a, it was a tumor, and she had cancer. And the doctor said that if they operated, she only had a 50% chance of living. They'd have to take out all of her female organs and that she ran a good chance of dying. If they didn't operate, she'd be dead in six weeks. And boy, this woman was devastated. And I'd heard about it. And anyway, I saw her at church one night and she came up to me. And she was crying and her husband, they're just 20 years old. They were just crying and bawling and they said, Brother Andy, this is, you know, and they told me all of this report and they said, what are we going to do? And I just looked at them and started laughing. And I said, cancer's no problem with God. What are you worried about? I said, cancer's no problem. Boy, it startled her. She was expecting sympathy, pity, see. And I said, cancer's no problem. Why don't you just pray and get healed? Well, they knew about healing. They knew about prayer. They knew about everything. But you know what? The pr cancer to them just looked real big at the time. And through that response, this lady just all of a sudden began to realize, you know, cancer's no problem with God. There's nothing too big for God. So we went over to her house, sat down and talked to him. I said, look, it's not wrong. You can go to the doctors. You can go that route if you want to. But I said, man, I wouldn't run the risk of never having any more children and getting all your female organs taken out. I said, I, don't, I just believe God. And boy, they decided that's what they'd do. And they called the doctor and the doctor told them she's going to die. The doctor made them sign these papers so that they would not be held legally responsible. And I mean, it was a tough battle. But that's been like four or five years ago. She was supposed to be dead in six weeks. She's now had two children or three children. What was the last report we heard? She's had two children and she's pregnant again. And, I mean, she's just as healthy, and God healed her, and it's just because, see, it's no big problem. 
But we lots of times justify where we are. When the Lord says, why are you here? Oh, God, did you hear what the doctor said? Well, big deal. Who cares a rip what the doctor said? Amen. Oh, I know I'm stepping on sacred territory here. I'm not against doctors. I'm just saying that a doctor's a man. And if you didn't have a word from God, well, then the doctor may carry a lot of weight. I'm not against doctors. I mean, if it hadn't been for doctors, all the Christians would have been dead. Praise God. They didn't know how to believe God. I'm not against doctors. I'm just saying that when you got a word from God, who cares what a doctor says? Who cares what the economy says? Who cares about anything? See, we always justify where we are. But there's no justification for not walking in the victory of God. See, he said, Elijah, what are you doing here? And he's, Elijah says, well, God, it's that woman, Jezebel. I've been faithful to you. I've fought your battles. I've destroyed these prophets of Baal, and I'm the only believer in all of Israel. I'm the only one seeking you. Anytime you get to thinking that you're the only one and you get to espousing all of your great virtues, you can write it off. You are in the flesh. You are not the only one in St. Joe that God's got. Amen. And the Lord finally told him, says, Elijah, i got 7,000 people who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. So he had him come out and he spoke to him. And anyway, I belabored all of this, but let me show you what the Lord said to him in verse 14. Here's Elijah's answer. Lord, I have been very jealous for the Lord God. This is 1 Kings 19:14. I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshai, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Sapat, of somebody else, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. Amen. The Lord gave him three things to do. Make Hazael the king over Syria, Jehu the king over Israel, and Elisha prophet in his room. The last part of this chapter is where he called Elisha to be the prophet in his stead. But did you know that Elijah never did the other two things that God commanded him? And it says over here in the 15th verse, it says, When thou comest on thy way to Damascus, do these things. In other words, this isn't just something God gave Elijah to do sometime sooner or later. He said, when you come, when you come down off this mountain, you go do this. Three things, Elijah did one of them. And in 2 Kings chapter 8, Elisha, his successor, anointed Hazael to be king over Syria. In 2 Kings chapter 9, Elisha sent another prophet, and they anointed Jehu to be king over Israel. Elijah never did either one of those things, or Elisha wouldn't have redone them. Elijah missed two out of three things that God commanded him to do. He turned coward and ran from this woman, got into a pity party, said, God, I'm no better than my father's take away my life, contemplated suicide. The man fell into depression and despair. Now, you can say that he repented of his depression and despair and recovered and went on, but you cannot say that he repented and went ahead and anointed Hazael and Jehu because he never did. It's no record of it, and Elisha had to do it. This man failed God in his actions, and yet Elijah was translated that he didn't die because, I'm sure, just like Enoch, he pleased God. Elijah walked with God to such a degree that this man was translated, and yet he was not perfect. He didn't have his act totally together. 
There was two out of three things God commanded him to do that he failed to do and never repented of it, never did it, and was still translated. Now, am I advocating us not serving God? No. Anybody who would take what I'm saying and say, Brother, I like this. You mean I can just live like the devil and get everything I want from God? I'd say that you have never been born again. A person who's truly born again, according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, says, Every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he's pure. A person who's truly born again has a desire to live for God. You may be doing a piddling poor job of it, but you've got the desire to live for God. And this will set you free from sin, not set you free to sin. Anybody who says, man, I like this. Now I can go live in sin. You need to get born again. Your heart's not been changed. I'm saying this to Christians who have a desire to serve God and yet you aren't perfect and you're still sinning and you're falling short and you have made the mistake of thinking that God is pleased with you and loves you based on your performance and you're under guilt and condemnation and you have no confidence towards God and your faith is wavering, not in that God can do it, but wavering in God's willingness to do it because you know you don't deserve it. I'm speaking to you when you do blow it that you don't come under the guilt and the condemnation and you don't think you're going to die because you missed a breath or missed a meal. You go on and you just catch back up and you get with it and stand there with your confidence built in a Savior. Faith in what He's done, not faith in yourself. And you begin to recognize that faith is what pleases God. You've put faith in Jesus. And praise God, God is pleased with you because of that. One last scripture, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says that there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. There is no condemnation to you, no judgment, no condemning against you. You know what the word condemn means? Like if they were to condemn a building, they would say that this building is unfit for use. And so they would condemn it. You couldn't use it. That's what the devil does. He comes and says, you're, you're unfit for use. God won't use you. That's condemnation. There's no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. And somebody says, wait a minute, see? See this phrase on there, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit? Uh See, that's it. Yeah, there's no condemnation if you're doing everything that you should. If, If I had time to teach on that, you could go on through Romans chapter 8. And there's a difference between being in the flesh and in the Spirit. Or excuse me, in the flesh and after the flesh. In the Spirit and after the Spirit. In the Spirit is talking about that you are there. It's an actuality. You are in the Spirit. You're living there. Your actions agree with it. After the Spirit is talking about that you are headed that direction. And it's consistent all the way through. When you are born again, you are born after the flesh. You immediately are after God. You are headed towards God. Now, you may not be exactly on target, but you're headed in that general direction. Amen. And there is no condemnation for those who are not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. I'm not perfect. I'm not walking everything I should, but I'm that direction. Did you know that the Apollo spacecraft, we think that, man, that technology, they fired that thing, and I mean, it was perfect. Landed on the exact centimeter they had it aim for. Did you know that the Apollo spacecraft, according to NASA, was only on target 11% of the time? And the rest of the time, did you know every five minutes, for however many days it took them to get there, they made a course correction every five minutes? That thing actually was thrown out there towards the moon, and every five minutes, it went like this, towards the moon. Amen. It was just back and forth. Every five minutes, a course correction. Did that mean that it was off course? 
Well, technically, it was off course, but it was always headed in that direction, and they kept correcting, and every time they corrected, it was closer. Did you know the Christian life's like that? There's not a one of you that's going to commit to God today, and I mean from now until the Lord comes, you're just going to go bang straight for God. You're going to be making mistakes. You're going to bounce like this towards God. You're going to get closer and closer, and your extremes will be less and less, but you aren't perfect. And you're, fa- you're chasing an elusive dream to get your act to a place where it'll be good enough that God will accept you and move in your life because you finally got it together. That's the biggest deception you could ever be under. And once you learn this, it doesn't encourage you to go lo- live in sin. But what it'll do, it'll take away the guilt and the condemnation that Satan beats you down with. And it'll put your faith in a Savior instead of faith in yourself. Instead of the old Pharisee syndrome, God, I'm better than this old publican over here. You'll begin to start saying, God, just have mercy on me. Amen. And you'll put all of your faith in a Savior instead of faith in yourself. And there's power in that. Did you know that you please God this morning? But like Enoch, you've got to perceive that you please God before you receive the benefit from it. Enoch had this testimony. Enoch not only pleased God, but he knew that he pleased God. And he went around telling people that I please God because of faith, not because of actions. Brothers and sisters, you need to get to that place. You need to say, Father, thank you that through Jesus I'm accepted. Through Jesus, not only are you able, but you are willing to use that power in my behalf because of Jesus, because of my faith. My faith pleases you. Ephesians 1, 6, I've been made accepted in the beloved. You're accepted in Jesus today. Amen. God loves you. God's pleased with you because you've put faith in a Savior. And if you can be pleased with you, if you can accept that God is pleased with you and, and confess it, did you know you can have great boldness towards God and faith that man not only is God able, but he's also a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He's going to release that power in your behalf. Amen? Praise the Lord. Let's stand up and pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your word today. And Father, I ask you for people that you open up our hearts and help us to see that, Father, we are pleasing to you, not through our own actions, but rather through faith. Faith in you. Faith in what you have done. Father, I ask you to make that a revelation to people. And people today, Father, I'm not asking you to encourage anyone to sin. I know that that's not your will. But I'm asking you, Father, for those who are seeking you and yet are failing And we aren't everything that we should be. That we would not let our failures stop you from loving us. We would not let our failures become an inroad of Satan into our life to condemn us and to beat us down. But we would stand strong in the grace that's in our Lord Jesus Christ. And base our relationship upon what you've done and not on what we've done. Father, I ask you for people that have been trusting in themselves. And maybe their works have been improving. But Father, they are headed for a fall. If they're trusting in themselves, I ask you to help those people to humble themselves today. And Father, turn from themselves and turn from their own trust and reliance in their own good works. And go back to just the simplicity of the gospel where our faith is in you. That you're our only righteousness. You're our only hope. That Father, our faith is 100% in you. And Father, we thank you. We believe that you take these words, Father, and that the word is like a fire and that it burns everything that's not of you in our life. Every attitude that doesn't conform to this word, I ask you to burn it up. And Father, just reduce it to the purity of faith in you. And Father, we thank you for it. We agree together and receive that in the name of Jesus. Amen.
You know, this morning, I really believe that the Lord has spoken to some people. There's some of you in here that are doing the right things. It's good to go to church because it changes you. You wouldn't have heard what I'm saying this morning sitting at home. Coming to church doesn't make God love you anymore. It makes you love God more because you hear the truth. There's some of you that are reading the Word, and it's good to read the Word because you aren't going to hear this listening to as the stomach turns on the television. You need to be in the Word. Amen. Reading the Word doesn't make God love you anymore, but it'll make you love God more because you'll hear the truth, and the truth will set you free. Some of you have been just putting all of your effort into praying, but you've been doing it with the attitude of, God, see what I've done. Isn't it enough? You've been doing things trying to get God to love you. But the truth is, God already loves you, and you just need to sit back and by faith accept it and divorce God's being pleased with you and loving you from your performance and put it solely on faith. There's some of you that have been working your fingers to the bone doing stuff for God, but with the wrong motive. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I give all of my goods to feed the poor or even give my body to be burned and do it without love, it profits you nothing. If you have all faith so that you could remove mountains and don't do it with love, it profits you nothing. There's some of you that have been dry. You've been profited nothing because your faith has been in you and in your performance. It's not that what you're doing is wrong. It's your thinking. Your faith is in what you're doing instead of what God has done for you. And there's some of you this morning that need to confess that is sin and say, God, forgive me for the sin of trusting in myself and forgive me for the sin of self-righteousness, trying to obtain to a position where I'm good enough that you'll love me based on what I've done. That's the worst sin of all because that just is a direct slap in the face of Jesus saying, Jesus, I don't need you. I'm going to be good enough through what I can do. And you need to humble yourself. The root of that is pride. Religion feeds on pride. What you can do. True Christianity is a very humbling experience because you, after you've done all of these things, you say, Father, we're just unprofitable servants. Man, we've only done what you commanded. There's some of you today that need to humble yourself and admit that, man, I've missed it. God, forgive me for blowing it and trusting in myself. And I want to give you an opportunity to humble yourself publicly. I believe that's the reason the Bible says confess your faults one to another because it is humbling. It brings you back to a dependency in God instead of a dependency in yourself. If that's you and if you say, I have been self-centered, I've been trusting my own things, I have not been putting faith in the Lord, I've fallen back into trusting in my own performance, my own works, God forgive me. If that's you, I want you right where you are to just raise your hand and say, that's me. I want to repent of it and ask God to forgive me and I want to put my faith back in the Lord Jesus. If that's you, raise your hand. I want you to keep it up. I want you to raise it where people can see it. I want you to humble yourself and say, man, I've missed it. If that's you, raise your hand. Don't do it after we start praying. Don't do it when everybody's closed their eyes. If you're going to humble yourself, humble yourself. Say, I'm wrong. God, forgive me. Father, for these people with their hands up, I thank you, Father, for their humility. I thank you for their heart's desire. And that is that, Father, you would be Lord, that you would be supreme, that their faith and trust and reliance would be upon you and not upon self. 